You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're bringing you an episode on leading in a culture of change with Michael Fullen. Michael has been the world's most persistent and persuasive advocate for systems leadership for deep learning experiences. He is encouraged by the global momentum he sees with whole systems adopting deep learning strategies and policies. 20 years after his best-selling book, Leading in a Culture of Change, Josie Bass released the second edition, a certainly timely resource. Let's listen in as Tom and Michael discuss leading in a culture of change. Michael Fullen, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. So glad to be back with you, Tom. It's good to have you back. Um, uh, Today we're celebrating the second edition of uh, Leading in a Culture of Change. The first one was at 20 years ago, Michael? Yeah, it was uh, routed in 2000. It came out in 2001. Wow. As I, um, I think I mentioned uh, the last time we talked that th- that book was really important to me and to many other education leaders. Uh, for a lot of us, that was the first time we got a, a tutorial in systemic uh, change. So it's really great to see the book back out again. Yeah, I know you reviewed the first one. It was a great, uh, great kickoff for me, and uh, and the second one you reviewed. So you know as much as I do, almost. But uh, we can talk about. It. <laughs> Michael, this this is um, I, this. I don't, I, did you re, do you rewrite enough of it to count as a new book? Would this be like forty seven? Uh, yeah, it's. I don't know what the percentage is, but uh, there was. Uh, we can talk about why I changed. It. I used the same framework, and I'll say why, but. We had so much more experience with it that deepened the concepts. So it's, I would say it's in words, it's probably 50% new words. All right. I, um, I, I want to get your, your view on what's happening in the world um, and how it's going to shift um, the, 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 the grand movement towards deeper learning. Um, we'll, we'll probably touch on that a bit during the book review but I'd like yeah. to end, end with that topic. So l- let's dive in and talk about leading in a culture of change, which seems, it seems super, super relevant uh, to what's happening worldwide. But in, in the introduction, Michael, you, you talk about a culture of change. How, how do you, what is a culture of change and, and what does that have to do with education leadership? Well, a culture of change is, uh, the content, of course, it, it differs depending on what the dynamics are. Right. Uh, so the culture of change is, uh, how does the system work? How, does the, how do things interrelate? Uh, what are people trying to change about that in order to get better results? And what are the ins and outs of trying to lead that degree of uh, complexity? And the big difference between the two books, this way, in, in these terms, is that when I wrote the first one in 2000, complexity was just complex. And now, and when I went to write the 2021, complexity became complex, complexified. And so I don't know whether readers are familiar with, uh, or listeners are familiar with the difference between making things more complicated by trying to rationally deal with complexity or making them more uh, amenable to uh, understanding, and, and that gets into the dynamics, nonlinear change, leaders have to be much more agile, all of those things. So uh, the complexity has definitely become more complexified 20 years later. Michael, we, uh, I often talk about novelty and complexity. The, the, 
young people in particular are seeing more new and complicated uh, situations. And the, the pandemic's just the latest, right? But uh, the rise yeah. of artificial intelligence, its Im- impact on the innovation economy, uh, climate change, all of these things are ratcheting up the, the rate uh, and amount of complexity. So I, I appreciate that observation. I think it's, it's super relevant for education leaders. Right, yeah, and we, uh, we, uh, we, we can talk about this, but in one sense, uh, when I wrote the first edition, it was, uh, I, w- I had been studying change for 20 years as a professor and doing research and being close to the problem, but I hadn't led change. And then in 2003, I was appointed as the advisor, senior policy advisor to the Premier of Ontario. And we launched a big change on literacy and numeracy high school graduation, did 12 years of very successful change, I would say. And uh, the relevance of this point is when I was studying it, that's okay. We made some good uh, in leading in a culture of change, gotten some new concepts out that people like you as leaders liked and began to use. But then, um, then in doing the change, I will say for that period, which is 2003 to 2013, we were able to just use complexity. That's an odd way of putting it. But we said, okay, literacy, numeracy, high school graduation, right. uh, capacity building. And then after, uh, now that we've finished uh, with that work, now I'm finding in the new edition that it's not just complexity. It's much more complicated than that. And we have to really think of these concepts, same concepts, but think of them more dynamically, and we can talk about that. I appreciate that. Uh, In the introduction, you said the more complex society gets, the more sophisticated leadership needs to be. I I appreciate that. Exactly, yeah. Feels like a a good, a strong rationale for uh, the the updated edition. So I do, I want to urge people, if you read the first one, uh, this is not just a retread, it's... uh, it's an important update, so uh, to get a copy of it. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. It, it's uh, ironic in some ways that the first edition went like wildfire for you know, 10, 12 years, whatever more. And uh, this one is slow. I don't know whether it's because it's, I've got so many books out there or because it's, it's uh, a second edition and people have other images, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely different. And it's, uh, I, I could talk about some of the... Uh, the key aspects that, that makes it different and why it's different. I, and another thing I appreciated about the introduction is um, that it, you, you talked about um, the, the book helped you understand what to focus on in messy conditions. We, I think we can all appreciate that phrase more than, than you probably even knew when you wrote it down and how leaders foster leadership in others. Yeah, and it's really the combination of those two of dealing with the messiness and the way in which you distribute leadership and um, evoke leadership in others, that that combination makes you, as you describe, um, indispensable um, forever. So I, I appreciate that. Good, yeah, and I think the uh, just to tease out a couple of the uh, key differences, uh, when we say it's messy, one of the things that makes it messy is it's nonlinear. In other words, the environment is changing a lot more rapidly now than it was 20 years ago. And when the environment changes, the leaders better change in organizations. 
And so it's by definition, it's messy because it's, and COVID has just compounded that in, in at many right. levels. Uh, but related to that is uh, just t- take one leadership insight that I, you know, I, I won't say all these my, are my own insights. It's what I pull out of our practice, working with leaders and reading about it as well. But if you take one of the key findings about leadership now is that leaderships, leaders have to be uh, contextually literate, deep contextual literacy. That's a bit of a mouthful, and I don't use that much jargon, but contextual literacy is understanding deeply the culture that you're in. And another uh, corollary of that is when any time you change a job to be take a leadership position in the same organization or elsewhere, uh, you automatically become de-skilled to a certain point. The, right. That the de-skilledness is because you can't possibly know that culture yet. And therefore, it has implications for leadership, which means you have to be, yes, you're an expert, you've got good ideas or they wouldn't have hired you, but you also have to be a learner or an apprentice, as we call it, because you've got to learn about that context. You might be learning from parents or students or whatever, but you've got to be a learner. And then you have to foster that, those characteristics in those that you want to build as part I, of your leadership. And I appreciate that. You, uh, and you talk about being the lead learner. And yeah. part of being the lead learning is to engage deeply in your context. Yes. I mean, I mean just take that. Uh, it was Roger Martin, the business, uh, uh, dean of business school, that wrote a book that, I, that this concept was in. But when he was uh, examining successful leaders in uh, countries where big change had happened, he said that one of their characteristics is they combined being an expert and being an apprentice. And so, he, he, in other words, he said, you better you know, don't hold back on what you know but also learn a lot. You've got to be a learner. If you're not a learner, you're not going to be effective. And I think probably you agree with me that the majority of leaders that we know are not effective. I mean, the majority, just if you had a way of measuring that. And one of the reasons it's not effective is they haven't been humble enough to combine their expertise and what they have to know in a new situation. And they certainly haven't, haven't been able to uh, help their, uh, their, the leaders, that, the team that they're building to be like that. This is such an important point, Michael. Um, I think this important point for, for teachers and uh, teacher leaders, the, the ability to say, I don't know, is critical to unlocking deep learning, both for yourself and for the children in, in your trust. Um, I don't think you can get to deep learning without acknowledging that I don't know and being willing to to acknowledge that in front of a, a group of third graders or in front of uh, your, your faculty uh, seems yeah. so, um, it seems foreign to many people, but it seems really critical to un, um, unblocking learning. Well, you, you know, there's a lot of ironies in here, and one of them is that, uh, that confidence is not a characteristic that's related to effectiveness and leadership. In other words, the, uh, the, the more confident you are, it doesn't mean you're more effective, which is an ironic, you have to be more confident, not more confident. And so those who pride themselves in being confident uh, don't say, I don't know very often. So because they're so confident, that's their persona. And therefore, they never learn much more than they start with, and they fail. And it's really blatant. And every, everybody knows that sometimes they call it the imposter syndrome. I'm yes. supposed to know something that I don't know it. I pretend I know it. But everybody knows. <clears throat> if you're an imposter on a given item of knowledge, everybody knows it. The young, you know, 10-year-olds know it. It doesn't have, you're not fooling anybody but yourself. Right. 
All right, Michael, let's, let's uh, dive into the five components of change leadership. The first one remains uh, moral purpose. Uh, it does remain that, and it's, uh, now it's more uh, dynamic, interactive. Uh, when I first wrote about it, it was more like make sure as a leader you have your moral compass, make sure that that's what guides your work, all of those. That remains to an extent, but now we say you've actually got to build your moral purpose in the situation in which you're in. It's not a static thing. And this is, you know, we've said these things like uh, being right is not a strategy of change. Uh, and just because you're deeply committed to some big goal doesn't mean you know how to get there. Right. So we have made a moral purpose to be like more dynamically interactive with the doing of change. I like that. You, you, you said that now it's more important to focus on impact. Why is that? I think it's because uh, it's, it's a mixture of things, uh, I would should say. But uh, one reason is it, it forces you to be clearer about whether you're getting anywhere. But then we get into the ins and outs of uh, how, how do you think about impact. And if you, if you think about impact in the wrong way, which is uh, we're going to increase literacy scores come hell or high water, and I'm going to pound the system until they do it. Right. You're preoccupied with impact. You might have moral purpose, but, but you're just blowing it because you're not, you're, not, you're not cultivating people to come along with you. Uh, I totally appreciate that. And Michael, the um, older I get, the more I think about unintended consequences. I don't know. Yeah. If you, all right. If, if you've attempted systems change, you have created some unintended consequences. And I guess the, uh, the more of those consequences that are in my wake, the more often I think about that. So I appreciate this dynamical view of um, moral purpose and, uh, and, and impact. Yeah, in the change leader, because they're poised into context, uh, the unintended consequences are recognized right away because they're there. Uh, whereas where the other leader is unaware of unintended consequences, later on it catches up to them, but then it's too late. So uh, the notion of unintended consequences is, is likely to happen. And if you're immersed in the, in the leadership and the, and the environment, the, con, uh, the culture that you're in, you will be part of knowing that because you'll, you'll be there. So right. seeing problems uh, as they adapt, it's adaptive leadership, but it's because you're on top of it that it happens. All right, second component is understanding change. And um, you, you say the new insight here is, uh, is nuance. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I wrote a separate book on, called Nuance, and, um, and it came out just almost parallel to this book on the second edition. And it is uh, uh, nuance. First of all, it's hard to explain because if I could explain, it would be no longer nuance, right? It's, <laughs> it is uh, picking up the subtlety. But uh, to give you uh, an idea is that, uh, and I've got in the book, in the other book, and I've used some of these examples in this book, I've taken leaders that I've known or seen or worked with who have been particularly effective. It could be a school, it could be a district. In one case, it's the province or state. And uh, I said, what makes these people effective? Because they look like they're doing a lot of the same things that others claim to be doing, but they're not effective, the others. So I found out that they were effective because they really uh, got below the surface. This is, again, the contextual. They really immersed in it. They didn't pretend they knew a lot. Uh, they, you know, a typical uh, 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 quote from these leaders is, the first three months I was there, I asked a lot more questions than I had answers for. And then I start. I learned, and then and then after that, and because part of this initial part is building trust, as you know, and uh, you, you know, trust is something 
we call it uh, go slow to go fast, is that you need to attend to the trust-related relationships and the nature of the problem, not for a year or two. Maybe it's only three months, but you've been learning, 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 and then you start to ramp up your, tar- you know, your telling questions, your focus, the tightening up the team, getting more serious. So it really is a process during implementation, especially the first six months. That's different than we thought of before, which we thought before, well, it's mainly capacity building, get teachers to be more effective. It's not that. It's about, it's about the content of change, capacity building, but it's also about the process of interacting with people to really get at the insights below it. So, uh, so this is really, I think, an important part of it. Yeah, I appreciate this. Um, it, it seems like about 20 years ago, Michael, um, all the education consultants started building these theories of change. And they were useful in that they, they created this if-then thinking that helped us understand um, a bit more fully complex systems. But I'm afraid that they were a bit reductionist in, in tricking us into thinking that change was relatively simple and relatively linear. I, I think what I've come to appreciate in part because of some conversations with a Chicago historian named Ada Palmer that history is very complicated. Uh, and that change in dynamical systems is very complicated, and it's often a series of very small perturbations that result in a different set of outcomes than we had intended. So my, my takeaway is um, that change is complicated and that it does require us to study um, the nuances of change mm-hmm. and to be prepared for things to occur uh, differently than we had anticipated. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, I, I want to just uh, take it, uh, unpack it a little bit, because in the two mistakes you can make at the front end is, uh, is pretend it's not complicated and then it gets you. Right. And the other is, though, is that you say, well, it's really complicated. I'm going, to cl- I'm going to have the models going to take into account all these things. And then it gets bogged down. You and your team right. are the only one that understands it or whatever. So what you have to do with the complexity is be a leader who learns complexity through the doing. So for example, at the front end now, one of the big, and this is a redefinition of, uh, of, uh, of moral, uh, moral purpose. Uh, I don't know whether you, you remember or know, uh, from, remember from reading, but one of the uh, chief management people in the 1920s was Mary Parker Follett. And she focused on unity of purpose. And she said that the, the, the goal of the leader is to work with those in their organization to continually develop, especially at the front phase, uh, the unity of purpose that you jointly hold. In other words, I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn, I'm gonna refine my unity of purpose as you refine yours. We're doing it interactively and out of that interaction right. will become uh, this better focus. And then the punchline she said, and I, I, I think she might've meant it slightly tongue in cheek, but I don't think so really. She said, and once you achieve unity of purpose, and then she paused and said, don't expect it to last for more than 15 seconds. So, I mean, she was acknowledging that this is a dynamic phenomenon and the way to lead, uh, to deal with dynamism is not to anticipate it, but be in the middle of it and learn while, have some things you already bring to the table, but I'll learn more when dyna- dynamism uh, starts going its course. I, wow, I love that. That's super insightful uh, from 1920. Yeah. Um, I've come to think about the work uh, that we do as as hosting conversations and building temporary agreements, um, 
and it in this dynamic setting, it is this achieving unity and then um, executing against it, but then very quickly um, building a new agreement around it. So I, I appreciate that dynamic view of alignment. That seems much more important today than it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. Number three, um, building relationships. It's always been more important, but how are you thinking about it today? Well, it's, um, it is about trust and, uh, we're trying to get people to think about, uh, uh, trust is something that you, uh, build a little bit slowly, but then once you have it, a lot of things can happen faster, you know, the so-called speed of trust. So we want people to attend at the front end. Don't move too slowly and don't move too fast uh, because either one too slowly uh, bogs things down too fast, uh, people rebel. So I think it is about trust. And then the relationships, and uh, now we're getting better at this, and I just want to make a, a distinction here. Uh, there's been a lot of work, as you know, and I've been part of its formation since uh, 1980 uh, on cl collaborative cultures. And it turns out that collaborative cultures are not necessarily any more effective, uh, that, that they can be equally superficial or wrongheaded or whatever. And so the new concept we have, and I have it in the book, is called connected autonomy, which recognizes the value of the individual and then says the individual, you need to be your own person, but you, but you, you also have to interact in order to become a better person because there are other things going on that you need to know and you need to contribute to that. So what we have now, I think, is, uh, is a different view of relationship. I'll just give you one more aspect that's a big insight. And I look for insights. Uh, uh, what I call sticky, uh, sticky observations, but here's one. Uh, leaders need to strive for precision, but avoid prescription. So that's a really big nuanced insight. In other words, you have to strive for precision, which is how does this work and what's the teaching that's going to produce this impact. But don't try to get at that precision, and when you get it, impose it then as a prescriptive rule for everybody else. And that's hard not to do when you think it's work. So it's re all of this stuff is dynamic, but allows you to capture things that work. But uh, another word for precision is specificity. Figure out the specific inner workings of something that pre results in an impact. And as a result of that, you can be a lot better. Then you use it more, but you're also uh, always uh, uh, wary of uh, settling down uh, precision into, therefore, everybody has to do it because we know it works. That's when you get killed. I love love that idea. Um, I, I guess I I think about the this as as creating generative relationships. If you're managing a big network, how how you do it without being oppressive? You want it to be generative, yeah. right? In the sense that people have the notion that they can contribute back to the system. Um, and so I appreciate the the interest in precision. Being specific might even be better, but. Um, that's a, uh, a nice way to put it. That does see, it does, I think, capture the tension of distributed leadership, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I only use, I mainly use precision because it's alliterative to prescription. Yes. But, uh, it is specificity. Uh, but yeah, the, I think this is really where it gets interesting uh, for a lot of things because uh, the, uh, this is the dilemma of connected autonomy. If you go too far over into autonomy, you don't get the learning and you don't get the impact. If you go too far into the collectivity, 
uh, you start to get the imposition and not the creativity. So yeah. the sophistication of nuanced leadership, uh, because what connected autonomy means is that everybody to a degree is a system player. I'm an individual, but I'm also contributing to the system because I'm connected. And when I'm yeah. connected, I contribute to the connection and I learn from the connection. So and Mark, this is why it's really a sophisticated concept. Yeah. So I said recently that I think we just ended a 150-year stretch of teacher as independent contractor and that now given this pandemic and the crazy way that we're going to have to go back to school um, with these different schedules of some kids being remote and some kids being on site, um, it's going to be hyper dynamical. Uh, and it strikes me that we've advised schools that now they, they, they need to have a learning platform that helps manage their work and that uh, everyone is now part of a team, uh, part of a blended learning uh, team. And that it strikes me that um, many people will impose those sorts of regimes in ways that feel quite uh, repressive uh, to people rather than inviting people to, um, to co-construct these new team-based platform-based uh, um, learning system. So this point seems super relevant to the next 60 days as people are preparing to go back to school in a way that might be more routinized than it has been in the past. Yeah, yeah, well, we, uh, uh, we did this paper with Microsoft called Reimagining Education that came out about a month ago. And uh, I mean, we did the paper, Microsoft co-sponsored it. But we, we have that uh, the transition phase disruption, et cetera, eventually getting to reimagining. And I, I think it, it won't be the next 60 days. It'll be the next uh, 200 days probably because this is yeah. not going to settle. It ne never will settle, but it won't settle the way that people think it will. And, but I think that's exactly right. It has to be a dynamic version where there is it's, uh, something is being learned in that. And, it's, uh, and it's, you've got to be... You've got to be poised as a learner, but the system has to interact in a, in a, in a way that it serves up learning to be learned. That is a, how, about how to do this. Uh, so this is why I think it's, it's going to push towards uh, interaction and, uh, and it's going to therefore, uh, I think, be on balance better than what we had before. And what we had before, which is another story in some ways, was that, you know, this at the public school system was... Uh, you know, almost 80% of students were not plugged in in high school. Right. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and the inequality was massive. So the external factors uh, pre-COVID were not very good for the, for the attraction of learning to students or teachers. Right. And therefore, we better use the crisis, the pandemic, as an opportunity to, to uh, self-correct some of that. Uh, number four is is uh, creating and sharing knowledge. W what's new about that? Uh, the newness is uh, deep learning. Uh, you know, knowledge was a bit static before for us, and yeah, we had the innovator that you know you could pick out the innovative companies that with that did pay more attention to innovation and knowledge. Uh, and Toyota was the big star when when we talked about that. They had some really good uh, insights about change, transparency being one of them. Uh, specificity of precision was another. It's all in there in Toyota. 
but you, you, you then can't take that model, which was operating under a certain set of circumstances, and now say, uh, well, it's just a matter of being innovative in terms of knowledge. Uh, the big change is, uh, and I, this is very, it's new, so uh, I don't think I've finalized the formulation of it, but the way I would put it is that, um, the dramatic way to put it is that we have um, significantly overestimated the potential of artificial intelligence, and we have significantly underplayed the human intelligence of individuals and groups, especially students uh, and teachers for that matter. So you've got this, uh, you know, around the knowledge, and we've, we've, uh, we're operationalizing in deep learning. We've said knowledge is something that has to do with deep learning. Deep learning is about, uh, and our conclusion about this is, uh, is very clear. We didn't expect this to be this clear, but it's about engaging the world and changing the world. As part, I mean, it's John Dewey in some in modern form, but this is what we found when we started to pull this out and have people work on the six C's and have students uh, participating more in shaping role knowledge guided by teachers who uh, were, were activators. And so I think it's exciting because the old knowledge, which I had in 2000 about, about uh, the role of knowledge, was more like, oh, how do you find the best knowledge and use it? It's a pretty static notion of it. Now we have knowledge is the heartbeat of the organization and it's dynamic knowledge and it's, uh, it's, it's when you learn uh, and you, you have a learning apparatus. And I think it's very much, uh, I don't know whether you have uh, read anything about the grammar of schooling, but uh, Tayak and Cuban, you and I go back yeah. a, quite a ways. When they did, wrote this uh, in 1972 or whatever it was, or 75, uh, they said schooling hasn't changed its grammar of how it works right. for 100, uh, they said a century, 100 years. This is now 25 years later, still hasn't changed. And uh, what you see in the political grammar is the old way of, uh, you know, school classrooms being what they are, standardization, not much, uh, not, not much uh, the role of students as on the receiving end of knowledge rather than proactive. And I just uh, actually very, uh, just almost a month ago, finished uh, a special issue of uh, the American Journal of Education, AGE, uh, was put together by Jal Mehta and Sarah Fine, who did the very good book in search of deep learning. But right. they, they put a call out for research-based articles on uh, changing the grammar of schooling. And they decided to publish five of these. And they got five. And they asked Larry Cuban and me separately to comment on them. And uh, we did. And so this issue will come out in about a month from now. But what we found was uh, uh, four of those five, they started with the new grammar. And then it fell back to the old culture like a flash. The fifth one did some good things, but it was one school, an isolated school, so it didn't have any leverage. So I think it, it calls to mind is, and this is where we, we coincide with the, the knowledge of uh, leading in a culture of change and the post-COVID opportunity is about changing the face of knowledge and having humans much more in control of what they're doing and start being uh, stop being wowed by artificial intelligence because it's, uh, and, I mean, I, I still want to use artificial intelligence as a, uh, you know, a sophisticated teacher assistant or, or as a, you know, or as a, even an independent player to do basic things like feedback on literacy and math and stuff. But I really want the bigger things like how do we improve society be at the heart of the moral purpose of education. And these are the things that artificial intelligence is in there, but human intelligence and most people are finding that uh, people 
are a lot smarter, especially young ones, than we thought they were or could be made to be. Uh, I love that. I just uh, finished a book called Difference Making at the Heart of Learning, uh, which argues that that should be the moral purpose of school is this idea of difference making of contribution. So I, I, uh, I love that formulation. Yeah, I, I saw that title and it's, a, it's a right in line with this conclusion. Um, the the last, uh, last point, number five, is around creating coherence, which seems like a fitting end to what could for some leaders be a disturbing and confusing um, list of change elements. So how, how do leaders help create coherence for their communities? We have uh, Joanne Quinn, who's my co-developer on deep learning. We did a book uh, three years ago called Coherence. And I wish we had called it Coherence Making, but we called it Coherence. And we made the point that systems that seem to do better have a shared sense of purpose about the nature of the work. So my, my point about that is you have to, uh, the leader's job is to, it goes back to our unity of purpose and Mary Parker Follett, is to forge coherence. And, uh, and uh, therefore you have to interact, you have to know what you're doing, you, have to, you need all the other things that are leading in a culture of change to be doing that. And when you forge coherence, I think uh, uh, you get a set, uh, especially let's say the first couple of years when you really work on it and they get a good uh, handle on it, you then have to recognize, well, coherence making is, has to be part of everything because uh, people come and go. So you quit, it's coherence making every time there's change in personnel. Uh, the environment changes, COVID, big factor, new coherence all over the place, or uh, new policies are made. So we've made this coherence making more dynamic and said it's not st static. You don't just get to know uh, one thing and therefore it all falls into place. You have to be in the game. And this is why it's always interactive. It's connected autonomy. If you take all the pieces of the book, they all are, are moving in the direction of creating dynamic, continuous coherence making. Uh, Michael, it it, um, it strikes me that it's it's easier to create coherence in a new school than an old school. You know, if you you do have the opportunity to create a new school, you can really begin with the learner experience and then create structures and systems around it uh, so that everything works together for teachers and kids. Any any tips for people walking into an existing system? How do you engineer coherence in what is a, a, a an incoherent system that has layers of of, of uh, inherited policy and structure and systems. Yeah, but that's a big question, a complex question. And one of my mentors was Seymour Saracen, yes. uh, who, who was the, the culture of the school and the problem of change was the first uh, book that I you know nineteen seventy two that I I, uh, I fell in love with and really got me onto this career. But what um, uh, he wrote another book that's not very well known. It's called the creation, the creation of settings and future societies. So for, what he did in that book was dispel the notion that just because it's new, it's going to be better. He had case after case where it started new and it fell back in the same old thing. So there's nothing big promising. But your question wasn't that. It's what do you do with the others? And this is where, and this is probably a good way to end, is we now see uh, system change as essential. And it, it, which, I mean, I don't mean theoretically, I mean actually. 
So right. this means you have to mobilize three levels. We've been working on this. Andy Hargraves has as well. Uh, the local level, which is the local school in the community. The middle level, which is the district or region. And then the uh, policy level, which is, let's say, the state. Uh, and uh, our very latest book is called The Devil is in the Details. And it's about thinking through those dynamics. And my, my uh, perhaps the last thing I will say, unless you have another question after this, is one of the encouraging things as I look at evolution and the, the biologist, uh, I love Ed, Edward Wilson, who after studying this for 50 years, said, "Why the reason I'm optimistic is that evolution is relentlessly bottom up. And so I think we have to go about leadership where we stimulate and respond to the bottom up, but we have an outlet for that bottom up, which is how the middle and the policy respond to it. So this is going to demand new things. And one prediction I want to make is that leaders uh, uh, are, are, are going to be different in, uh, you know, in the next five years than they have in the last 20 years, different and better. And I don't say that because I'm just a romantic. I say it because I think the dynamics of evolution are pointing to the need for more leadership and people are going to respond to it first in a kind of awkward way, in a crude way, but we're going to settle out of that with better leadership that links the policy level with the practice level, with the practice level having as much influence upward as the policy level does downward. So st you're still uh, optimistic about more uh, deep learning globally? Yes, uh, I am now. And uh, in fact, I would say that there's more interest in our deep learning since COVID than there was in the, uh, let's say, the 12 months prior to it. I think it really has shaken people up. They know that the previous system wasn't working. Uh, regardless of COVID, it wasn't working. So now they say, well, yeah, and it even COVID exposes it even more, uh, lays it open. So they're open to the better. And I, I'm, if I take, you know, Thomas Kuhn is another famous writer. He wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in, uh, I think, 1962. And he said two things need for transformation or re revolution in thinking or in models. One is that the current system isn't working, uh, and it's clear to everyone. He called it catastrophic. It's not working cataclysmically. And so what you can say about that, uh, and, and he did say uh, that's a necessary, but it won't actually cause system change unless there's also an alternative model in the wings or, or being developed. So I'm optimistic to the extent that we're pretty sure now we've got the cataclysmic problem addressed or existing, and that we have to work on the deep learning type solutions that provide the attractive alternative to system change, not to ad hoc change. Do you, do you have a copy of Leading in a Culture of Change handy there? Show us uh, it. Yeah, no, there it is. A new cover, second yeah. edition, uh, just came out, um, fully updated for this new complexified uh, period that we're living in. Get a copy of it now. Michael Fullen, uh, Thanks for your life's work. Uh, thanks for updating this book. Uh, you've helped us all understand uh, a bit better um, the, the crazy times that we're living in. Well, thank you, Tom. I, I really re appreciate always talking to you and your proactive uh, interviewing that you're, you're always so good at. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Uh, talk to you soon. Yep. Take care. A big thank you to Michael Fullen for joining us on this week's episode, and congratulations again on the second edition of his book, Leading in a Culture of Change. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog in case you want to grab yourself a copy. 
And thank you listeners for tuning in to this week's episode. But before you go, make sure you leave us a rating and review and hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.